This is Habitat Matters, produced by Architecture Today in partnership with ACHO, a podcast series that looks at the challenges involved in putting biodiversity and green infrastructure at the heart of our built environment. So I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today, and this is AT Conversations. I'm talking to James Lord, who is a partner at HTA Design, and David Mooney, Director of Development at the London Wildlife Trust. James and David have been working together on various projects, but one of them is Cator Park in the London Borough of Greenwich, which has won a whole load of awards. James, do you want to tell us a little bit about the project and why it's so special? So it's it's a, a significant park with alongside new housing development, which is um, Kidbrook Village. Kidbrook Village is about 5,000 homes. They're about halfway through the development at the moment, which is Sparkly Homes is the developer. Um, and there was a, a large swathe of green space running through the middle of the master plan. And David will um, add further detail to it, but um, es- essentially um, we were both brought on board by Barclay Homes because the green space that ran through the middle um, that had been installed very early in the master plan, um, I think everybody agreed that there was further potential in the green space that it wasn't quite hitting the mark in terms of what it could provide for the for the new community there. That also coincided with Barclays' commitment, uh, recent at that time, recent commitment to deliver uh, a concept called biodiversity net gain on all of their development sites. And the park and the potential to remodel the park in a biodiverse way was seen as a good opportunity to prototype the approach for, for Barclay. Um, to find out how to deliver biodiversity net gain on a very large development like that. Um, so, David, how usual is it for a big giant like Barclay to approach the Wildlife Trust to take a very active involvement? It's no, reasonably common. I wouldn't say it's completely unique. But in London at the time, to, this is 2016, it was, yeah, it, was a, it was a first. We weren't really engaged with big developers and big regeneration projects like we are now there was a bit of a moment i remember with fondness the the late tony pigley myself and david attenborough stood on the banks of a of a reservoir um that we just converted into a new nature reserve called woodbury wetlands and i i briefed david attenborough to say um wouldn't it be great if all all regeneration and developers could could add value and nature conservation to all their developments, just like this one. So sure enough, Sir David said to Tony those very words, and Tony turned around with a glint in his eye and said, leave it to me, David. And so the next, the next day, the next, literally the next day, I got an email from um, one of, one of the, the, the board of directors, Carl Whiteman, to say, can you come and have a look at Kidbrook Village and, and Cater Park? And that was quite a unique situation. I haven't really had anything. I can't, I can't tell that story quite like that with any other project. Um, and, we, and sure enough, I went, I went down to, to Cater Park just before I left to go on honeymoon, actually. And James is being very polite. He's being very professional. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a golf course at best. It was, a, it was woeful as a piece of green space. Um, it failed on all accounts, in my opinion. But I can say that because, you know, I don't really have the same job as James. 
And so it went on, didn't it, to win the David Attenborough, in fact, it was it the inaugural David Attenborough Award for mm-hmm. Enhancing Biodiversity? Yeah. yeah. So um, how important do you think the sort of endorsement of high-profile names like that is for the work that you do? Um, uh, it's It helps, you know, the influencer culture that we have now. Of course it helps. Uh, I know that David would say, be mortified to think that he he has to sign everything off for it to be good. Um, it helped, you know, having a name against it. Of course, it helped. But the, the even without the, the name against it, Cater Park, Kidbrook Village, the biodiversity value that we've, we've done there is just it is fabulous. It's, it's brilliant. It doesn't need someone famous to sign it off. You go down there and it has you at hello. So, how does having somebody? like the Wildlife Trust on board from those kind of early design stages, how does that actually change the way you approach the design process within your team? Well, again, in all fairness, the actual original concept for this came from David. David was involved briefly before um, we came on board. I think that um, email from Carl was quickly followed up by an email to us um, saying, you know, we think you might be a good pairing for London Wildlife Trust, um, we, we, we met. And at that time, David already had a sketch <laughs> of, of how he saw the, the matrix of habitats coming together um, in Cater Park. And um, we quickly, I mean, I think it's fair to say, David, we, we quickly got on. We'd, we'd met each other previously. Um, and so we, we quickly built a, a pretty good professional relationship and took Absolutely. those initial ideas, um, worked with expertise in my team but also expertise in David's team um, so very much listening very carefully to the uh, the ecological advice that David's team were, were, were giving and the design advice that we were um, giving and then that so it came together as a as a combined vision um, and of course Barclay played a big part in that as well so it's it, it was definitely the, the three parties coming together um, and delivering delivering a vision and they gave us a pretty tight brief, pretty stretching brief. It wasn't just to create biodiversity net gain, but it was also to create a place that the community is really going to value and going to, going to take pride in having on their doorstep. And there were huge amounts of spoil to get rid of as well um, uh, to, to create topography throughout the whole park. So, you know, bringing those things together and then the, the relationship and the ideas that, that, that flowed pretty quickly. It was really a good collaborative project, actually. So on the subject of the community, it's so it's it's kind of bedded in now, hasn't it? Has it been open for a couple of years? What did the community make of it? Yeah, we did a kind of a very brief survey of this of the park before we did anything, just to prove what I suspected, what we suspected, that people used it as a cut through, as a walk through. They never stopped. They didn't feel like it was a place they wanted to sit and be in, and. We haven't followed that up with another formal survey. But if you go down to the site, people are having picnics, people are hanging out, people are taking their kids, people are you know, taking binoculars, kind of walking through the wilder parts of it and feel this, this sense of this visceral connection with, with the natural world. You can, you can feel it. You, you, like I say, you, you get down there and it has you straight away. And so people are stopping now. People are, uh, are, are enjoying it. And that's the difference. People are engaged. We're, we're still there. London Wildlife Trust is still doing maintenance and management advice and, um, and guiding the teams down there. In fact, we might get a bit more involved moving forward. 
You're listening to Habitat Matters, produced by Architecture Today in partnership with ACO as part of their Habitat Matters campaign. Find out more at habitat-matters.com. We're still talking about creating a community facility, a volunteer hub where people can come along and engage with the, with the wildlife that's um, on their doorstep, from their window, um, maybe have a bit more of a presence there and build and build a bit more of a, a feeling of actually, to, you know, a natural park. You know, this sense of more of like a, a natural nature reserve in, a, in an urban environment rather than a park. We'll still call it a park because it is fundamentally a park, but we can call it a natural park. We've got another site, London Wildlife Trust owner site in, in King's Cross in, in, in Camden called Camney Street Natural Park, which was in, in the, uh, the Observer magazine, a, a big article about it. This sense of it being a park, amenity space, but very natural. And that takes years to build. That's 36 years we've been doing that. And Cater Park, you know, it, it's going to evolve and grow and grow and, and, and establish even more as we bed it in further. Two years is nothing in the natural world, no? Yeah. And we did a lot in the design as well to make sure that we were providing the right facilities in the right places so that people would want to come. We, we'd always described it as, as having the potential to be a destination park for London. Yeah. And, and that was a brave vision to create something that, that people are going to travel across the capital to get to um, because it is such a great park, not uh, for the nature, but also for things like play. We've, we've created an amazing play space um, up at the top and multi-use games areas with um, yeah. bleacher seating dropping down to it so people can gather and watch the sport. I mean, with the play, I think I found it really interesting. It's all been um, built using as much as possible recycled and upcycled materials, lots of natural materials, play ditches, so that kids can get down on their hands and knees and get dirt under their fingernails. It's all part of the same story. But we we moved to that originally in the master plan. The play space was in a different location. And we moved that further north in the park so that it was on the um, desire line between the Kidbrook Village Centre and the primary school. And was also right outside the older person's accommodation. Usually, you might think play spaces and older person's accommodation might, might not be Happy bedfellows, but what we've heard again anecdotally, because we haven't had a chance to do the surveying yet of, of, of people that use the park, but anecdotally, we've heard that parents are getting nagged by children to go to school half an hour early so that they can drop off in the play, play area on the way to school. Happy days. <laughs> and so there's been a significant uptick in visits to the um, uh, residents of the older. <laughs> older person's accommodation because the grandchildren Reports. want to go and visit grandpa and grandpa because they've got the best play space in london outside it that's it reports so, of children actually wanting to get dressed in the morning do you think there was a, a a kind of accounting exercise about the increased value you could put on the homes if you had an amazing public space next to it they take landscape and public realm very seriously which is great for us. Uh, we get to have serious conversations about what we're trying to do and how we can improve things. And of course, like any developer, they need to look after their bottom line, but they understand that actually these things like Cater Park add value to their business. They've always understood that. It's a no-brainer. Uh, I talk about it freely with clients that these kind of projects achieve a triple bottom line. There's a financial benefit to, to having properties next to uh, ecologically rich open space people pay a premium to live to have who, who doesn't want butterflies and kingfish darting across their kitchen window people pay for it uh, there's a recent uk green building council report put together a 
an estimate of what the, the added value of open space is to next to properties. And it's between like, 7 and 10%. So there's a financial bottom line. There's a financial value to this. There is an environmental value to this work. And that's the other that's set of consideration. It's obvious that biodiversity net gain and giving back and reconnecting people with the natural world and, and trying to, to support habitats sustainably it adds an environmental value. And then there's a social value. The social value that wildlife brings to people's lives the sense of health and mental well-being that you get being being in nature and living next to to wildlife adds adds value to people's lives. So the the triple bottom line I talk of is financial, environmental, and social, and and it is it's pro- it's proving itself to be the case. It's a win 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 uh, for everyone involved. Let me ask you quickly about policy and legislation. Where are we at the moment? And so what, what, what do developers actually have to do in terms of biodiversity net gain and related subjects? So there's two layers of it. There's a central government policy and then there's regional government policy in the GLA. So in, this is London, right? So I'll start with central government. So across the country, uh, the Environment Bill has now come into, into force, into law. Um, and in the Environment Bill, there is a, a requirement from I think April 2023, don't quote me on the month, but I know it's 2023, uh, it is mandatory for all development, anywhere, wherever it may be, to achieve a 10% biodiversity net gain. Now, for those that don't know what biodiversity net gain means, it's basically a, a, uh, a site must be left in a better condition for nature and wildlife by a, a value of 10% from the baseline when it went before the development happened. So an ecological assessment will be done of the habitat and the landscape prior to development. A score, a score will be given using a, a toolkit that's been developed by DEFRA and Natural England. And then a 10% uplift in, in biodiversity value in terms of habitat and condition of that habitat uh, must be achieved. So in London and Greater London, it, you can do it with your eyes closed. The, the sites we're, we're talking about in London have almost no ecological value um, when, they're, when, they're, when they're assessed at baseline. And then a, a project like Cater Park, we've achieved about 250%. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's just farcical, really. We could, we could, we could do even more because it's such poor quality in the first place. Where it becomes slightly more problematic and, and slightly difficult to implement or understand is, is where you go out into more rural areas. Um, and that where there are hedgerows that need to be protected, there are trees, there are standing water, ponds, natural wetlands that need to be protected, the biodiversity net gain becomes a lot harder to achieve. And that's why, what it's designed for, to protect in its first instance those, those really important habitats. So the, the toolkit is designed to, to, to be skewed towards protection and then enhancement rather than let's wipe it clean and then add it back in. That's, that's not something you get a good score for. You get your score for protecting and then adding to, protecting and making bigger. So we talk about protect, connect, and enhance. So you protect what's, what's there, you connect it. So you connect the hedgerows to, to other woodlands, and then you enhance those woodlands and those hedgerows, and then you find building space. So it's actually quite a difficult concept, particularly for architects to get their head around. We're talking about space, First, to, to quote Anne Rand, is it Anne Rand? It is, yep. Space, then people, and then buildings. Building comes last and not the other way around. That is very much kind of the biodiversity net gain principle that's, that's been trying to embed 
in master planning. And this was the first, wasn't it, in a whole series of sort of biodiversity net gain projects that Barclay were planning. Yes. How has the Cater Park experience impacted on future projects? And are there any kind of lessons learned that, that have changed the way that you've approached future work with them? Um, Bar- I think the lesson Barclays learned was that they put in a park, um, spent quite a lot of money putting in the golf course, and they could have saved a hell of a lot of money if they'd have thought about it early enough um, in, in, the, in the process. This is Habitat Matters, produced by Architecture Today in partnership with ACHO, a podcast series that looks at the challenges involved in putting biodiversity and green infrastructure at the heart of our built environment. So other parts of the business are visiting Cater Park, checking you know the, the order of things and the, the way it was delivered and when it was delivered and, and wanting to not repeat the mistake of, of putting in a park and then having to change it again. Um, so that's been positive. Um, using Cater Park as a, as a sort of poster child for, for other projects is, is great. It's really useful. Um, James and I regularly go and visit Cater Park um, and, and show, show it around to other Barclay directors um, and other, other people as well, because, you know, it's, it's a great piece of work and Barclays are, are happy to be leading on, on this kind of stuff and, and other clients are influenced as well, other, other organisations. The way that we delivered this was quite unique, actually. Thinking back, there was a moment when we jumped. I, I, I pulled up one of the London Wildlife Trust minibuses, right, and went and picked up all the directors and James and his team and hoiked them off to other sites to go and have a look at it. I was driving. It was all a bit kind of, <laughs> you know, it, it, this, is a, this is a London Wildlife Trust minibus, right? So it's not kind of polished and shiny. It's, it's, a, it's a volunteer van. So they're all in their suits and... <laughs> sitting in amongst the tools tools and um, chainsaws and we went and had a look at a few different other sites just to really get a sense of what we were go- what we were aiming for here like, you know, how wild can we go how out of your comfort zone do you really want to go and to their credit they really enjoyed it you know, we stopped off and had a you know a cup of tea and a biscuit and all that kind of stuff out the back of the van everyone got really on board and that's quite unique i don't do that very often with other clients we don't you know Tend well, to... maybe you should. Maybe the uh, the wildlife van, like the Scooby Doo van. Well, exactly. Yeah, but no, it's not that clients don't, others don't want to do it. Um, I suppose COVID's got in the way of quite a lot of that. But that's the kind of thing that we, how we operate. That's the kind of way we, we don't. I don't wear a suit. I don't wear. I don't wear a shirt. I, I do wear clothes. Just to be completely. I'm not a, for the podcast listeners. I'm not um, a, a naturalist or naturist. I mean, what the difference is. But you know, we, we go out and we get stuck in, and we just we just keep it real and and say this is what we do and 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 try and push boundaries and try and influence people to to think about what enhancing ecology really means to their aesthetic in their mind how easy is it actually to monitor uh, yeah really very straight to the point as well aren't you? i mean that, that is the issue how do you know that the design the master plan design will be the thing that's produced eight years later or however long it takes to phase the project. What monitoring is in place other than the wildlife trust or the, you know, the passionate nature conservationist in the design team staying on that design team for eight years? How do you know that, that those phases aren't going to be played with, toyed with and altered and changed and the, the, the net gain score chipped away out from master planning to delivery? The question is a very, very good one. 
and I do not have an answer for it at the moment because there is no real monitoring structure in place. Well, I mean, I hate, I hate to hate to add to your workload, but your organisation feels like the, if anybody's going to actually be charged with responsibility for long-term yeah. custodianship and policing and nurturing, it's probably the Wildlife Trust, isn't it? Or RSPB or, yeah, any, any, any nature conservation organisation. Absolutely, we should be a key part of design teams um, on, on all major developments, I think. There, there is no real obligation yet um, for developers to bring us on. I'd like to see something in the legislation that accounted for financially our, our presence. I think we do a lot of, uh, we, we do a much greater job because we are, you know, we are the locally embedded nature conservation organisation. We'd be much more efficient, cost effective and probably more impactful than Natural England trying to do it themselves. So we are discussing with central government. I mean, I'm, I'm not. Our, our, the Wildlife Trust nationally are discussing ways that we can improve monitoring. And I think that there's a, there's a potential for funding to support ongoing monitoring at a fairly reasonable, you know. Well, it must be cost. a negligible cost, really. I mean, compared to big development costs, when you start looking at the kind of 106 figures you get associated with these big regeneration projects, the cost of having... Oh you know, you guys in there in a, a fairly light touch role is absolutely negligible, isn't it? If it's written into that initial business yeah. plan. Yes. But then what power do we have? Where, where is it? What's the written, you know, legislation to say you, you have slipped from your biodiversity net gain score, get back on track. Otherwise we are going to, what, what are we going to do? Take you outside to the car park. You know, <laughs> what, what's the, what is the legislation there? There isn't, also a legislation to say you'll be fined or well, I suppose a, it's, a stern letter from London Wildlife Trust. Well, at its simplest, there's a, a reporting. I mean, it, in a way you could yeah. say it's quite weak, but if there's just a sort of public obligation to go in and, and, you know, do surveys and check that the biodiversity is as it was predicted and all those things, and that's your naming and shaming and it's public, that would be a first step. Wouldn't it? it would. None of, none of that's really set in, in, in stone at all yet. And we've got two years, well, less than two years now to, to start to move on that. And do you think it's it's up the ante in terms of the kind of norm for all the big developers, the volume house builders now? I think so. They're always keeping an eye on each other and seeing who's ahead of the pack um, and where one goes. And if they have success with it, then others will follow. And I think the policy is um, uh, in terms of, you know, London policy with urban greening factor and biodiversity net gain and then national biodiversity net gain policy. It's helping. We're seeing house builders employing um, biodiversity um, uh, uh, advisors in-house. That's a, that's a new thing. Uh, and I hope they're successful and I hope they have authority. And it's certainly something that's being discussed on new projects uh, right at the inception when, when we're working with developers to, to win sites, to win public sites. The discussion of biodiversity is right up there um, at the very beginning of projects, which, again, is a new thing, but I'm absolutely pleased to be hearing it, um, particularly with finding with, in many ways, if you work on, on an urban site, which has been a brownfield site and the biodiversity value is relatively low, 110% increase is not particularly stretching. That can be done. Getting up towards 200% that we delivered in Cater Park is pretty difficult. Um, there are other places where I'm sure more could be achieved um, but on a brownfield site. But of course, there's, there's a big push towards building elsewhere at the moment um, and in, in communities where they're seeing farmland and, and green sites um, being built on. And 
it will be much more difficult to achieve net gain in sites like that. And so it is really important that, that those conversations are had really early on in the master planning exercise. And I think it will have a significant impact on the way places look and feel and operate and the amount of green infrastructure they have and the amount of blue infrastructure that they have. We're, we're certainly seeing all the indicators are pointing in the right direction, where landscape is, is a far more prominent conversation at a much, much earlier stage on the project, which is, which is fantastic. James Lord, David Mooney, thank you so much for joining me today. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Christina Montero from DCKN Architects and landscape architect Charlotte Harris from Harris Bug. And we'll be talking about rewilding the urban childhood. You've been listening to Habitat Matters, brought to you by Architecture Today in partnership with ACCO as part of a whole series of webinars and podcasts about bringing biodiversity into the built environment. To find out more, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.